We're going to go through the feasts of the Lord from Leviticus 23, and we're going to look at New Testament places where they're mentioned in the New Testament. They're not all mentioned, but quite a few of them are. And so we're going to look at that. Before we do that, we're going to start with Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what Jesus was saying here is, we're not scrapping the, the Mosaic law. We're not throwing out the Old Testament. We are continuing God's plan for history and fulfilling the Old Testament. And of course, Jesus explains how that works in the next, uh, you know, chapter five, six, and seven, the Sermon on the Mount. And also, when we look at things like the feast, Leviticus 23, that would have been the law and the prophets. You know, that would have been the law part. And so this is part of what Jesus was referring to, that he didn't come to abolish these things, but to fulfill these things. It could be that Jesus came to fulfill these feasts and these special holidays that are described in Leviticus 23. So let's take a look at that. Passover and unleavened bread, the first two. Passover is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasts a week. Again, Passover, the celebration of that final plague that allowed Israel to get free from Egypt. And then Unleavened Bread, remembering the escape from Egypt. The Last Supper, where Jesus ate with his disciples the night he was betrayed, he was going to be taken and then uh, tried and crucified the next day. That last supper that Jesus had with his disciples was actually the Passover meal. They were celebrating the Passover, the first day of unleavened bread, uh, just like it's said to do in Leviticus chapter 23. So let's go to Matthew 26 and read 17 through 20. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And then, of course, we follow through that. It's Judas, Jesus is talking about that. And then Judas will betray him and he'll be taken away later that night. So that last supper, very, very important moment in time, was a celebration of the Passover feast with Jesus and his disciples. So we see that happening already. Also, the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus as the Passover lamb. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So the Apostle Paul here writing a letter to the church in Corinth, they had a lot of problems. So a lot of the things that you see in 1st and 2nd Corinthians are kind of like scolding. The Apostle Paul is, is sort of telling them that they need to straighten up. And that is also the case with these verses. So 1st Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
So we see here that the Apostle Paul is describing Christ as the lamb, the Passover lamb, and he's talking about the feast of unleavened bread, that we should keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness. Leaven became symbolic of bad things like the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It was considered to be leaven, you know, just symbolic for something bad that needs to be taken out. Here we see that the apostle Paul is saying, you can't run around in malice and wickedness. That's not going to work. You got to get rid of that and you need to walk in sincerity and truth. And so we see here the apostle Paul calling Christ the Passover lamb and calling back the Feast of Unleavened Bread in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And then also, with regards to communion, let's go to Matthew 26 again. Read verses 26 through 28. It says this, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. So this would have been unleavened bread on the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, which is Passover. Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So we see at a Passover meal, Jesus is declaring the new covenant in his blood. You know, when we celebrate in communion what Jesus has done for us, his blood shed for us, his body broken for our healing. This is something that we celebrate monthly with communion. And this is the new covenant, the fulfillment of God's plan. And so I think it's very clear that when Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, when we see the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, that this is very clearly fulfilled through Christ. And now we celebrate the same thing with communion. It's all a throwback to Leviticus chapter 23, which is a throwback to previous events that happened in the history of Israel. Then we got the first fruits. So Passover and unleavened bread. Now first fruits. What does the New Testament say about first fruits? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, back to the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians. Chapter 15, starting in verse 20, says this. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. So again, he's kind of scolding the Corinthians because they were saying there's no resurrection of the dead. And Paul is saying, look. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead. There's clearly a resurrection of the dead. They were getting some weird theologies and that sort of thing. So he's trying to straighten that out now in, in chapter 15. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus, the first fruits, the first one to be resurrected in that way, uh, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So Christ is the firstfruits, and then when those who belong to him are gathered in, that's like Pentecost, where those come in. So Christ the firstfruits, then when Jesus comes, referring to the second coming, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God, the father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. So we see first fruits here also referenced as Christ being the first fruits. Definitely, you know, the resurrection of Christ as the first fruits of those who are going to be raised to everlasting life. Now that's really good. But whenever we talk about things like this, 
I've noticed that things can start to get a little bit like you're building a house of cards, like, and you're not exactly sure if you're standing on a firm foundation or not. And with the first fruits, you see also in the New Testament, the first fruits being used in other ways. So Romans 8, 23, for example, is a different use of first fruits. And it says this, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So here, the apostle Paul talking to the church in Rome saying that, We have the Holy Spirit in us, the first fruits of our experience with God and God giving us that deposit, uh, a connection with God through the Holy Spirit. But there's going to be a much greater experience with God that we will have after this age is over. So we are experiencing the first fruits now with the Holy Spirit, and then we will get the adoption, our completed uh, experience with connecting with God through the redemption of our bodies, you know, and this is all over and we're, we're in heaven and that's going to be the fullness of our experience with God. So first fruits, we definitely see referring to Christ, but we also see it as just kind of an example of the first part of something. Then go to Pentecost. So something very, very important happened on the day of Pentecost in the New Testament. That is the birth of the New Testament church. So Acts chapter 2, we'll start with verses 1 through 4, and we'll see something very, very important that happened at Pentecost. Remember, this is the celebration of the completion of the harvest. So all the grain is in, and they're all going to Jerusalem to celebrate. They're required to make different sacrifices and offerings and to celebrate the, uh, the goodness of God. So all these people have gathered in Jerusalem, and this is what happens in the, the birth of the early church. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And this would have been a group of about 120. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So when it says other tongues, it means other languages. And there were all these people that had traveled to Jerusalem for the harvest festival, Pentecost. And now they're hearing these people that are proclaiming the goodness and the wonders of God in their own language. And they're just amazed at it. And it's an incredible miracle. A bunch of people were given the ability to speak other languages that other people could understand. And they're proclaiming the glory and the goodness of God. And so this has a huge impact on a bunch of people. And the final result is verse 41 of Acts chapter 2, which says those who accepted his message, that's Peter, who was preaching to the masses, were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So we see 3,000 people come in to become followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost, the day of the celebration of the big harvest. And so we see... Christ as the first fruits, and then the church as the harvest, as the, the big harvest. You know, that seems to make sense, right? Kind of following, we're kind of following it. Though, is that the fulfillment of Pentecost? I'm not sure. Does it fit 1 Corinthians 15? Because that seems to be Christ the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. And then wouldn't that be the 
you know, the resurrection of everybody else would then be Pentecost. I don't know. It's starting to get a little iffy, but it's also tracking. That's how that works. Sometimes it tracks, sometimes it doesn't. Now we'll go to some things that haven't happened. The Feast of Trumpets. Now this, of course, as we talked about briefly earlier, they would blow trumpets to get God's attention to say, hey, look at us, come be with us, help us in this situation. They would blow trumpets to make a connection with God. And with the Feast of Trumpets, it could be that this represents the second coming of the Lord. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 57. So we're back into 1 Corinthians. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. At the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, and this is that last day where those who are asleep in Christ will be made alive. What exactly that means, not completely sure, but those who are still here will be changed. And there is going to be an amazing thing that happens. This happens at the last trumpet is when that happens. Let's keep reading. Verse 53. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the law and sin and death, but Christ has shed his blood on the cross to pay our debt so that we can be forgiven. So sin and the law don't destroy us. The victory is in Christ and hallelujah for that. So we overcome all of that and are able to get the victory through Christ. Thanks be to God. This is the Feast of Trumpets, the second coming of Christ. Could very well be. That seems to be what's talking about here. And some eschatologists, those are the people that study end times events, the things that haven't happened yet but are prophesied in the scriptures, they also tie in the rapture here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 and 31. This is Jesus speaking, and he says this, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So we see this trumpet call again, which seems to be a throwback, a reference to the Feast of Trumpets, the presence of God, Jesus coming back, but also the gathering of those who believe in him, the rapture of the saints. So that's amazing stuff. So now let's go to the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement, which was a day of humility and sacrifice and hardship for the nation of Israel, some people 
tie that in with the great tribulation. So the great tribulation described in Matthew 24, 20 through 22, and in other places too, but let's look at this one. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So people tie in the the mourning and the difficulty of that time, the great tribulation with the day of atonement. And then the last of the holy days of Leviticus chapter 23 is the feast of tabernacles. And some tie that in with the thousand year reign of Christ. The thousand year reign of Christ is when Christ comes to dwell on earth with people in a temporary situation that then will be made permanent after the thousand year reign, they capture the devil, tie him up for a thousand years. Jesus reigns on earth. Everything's going great. Then they let the devil go again, which seems like a strange plan, but that's the plan. Then the devil and everybody with him thrown in the lake of fire and you get the new heavens and the new earth. So could the feast of tabernacles be tied to the thousand year reign of Christ? Let's look at that thousand year reign from Revelation chapter 20 verses four through six. Verse four, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. And they had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So could it be that this thousand year reign, this temporary reign of Christ ties in with the feast of tabernacles, the celebration of the temporary time that Israel had with God as they wandered in the desert. They had the tent of meeting that got set up and taken down. It was a temporary thing. Could that be a throwback to the feast of tabernacles? Maybe. (laughs) Could very well be. Did you notice as we read through this very quickly that some of it was hard to understand And some seem to go one way and some verses kind of went a different way. If you study it real close, some of it seems to go in different directions. Well, what do we do with that? Well, I believe we've been given all the information that we need. There is some stuff that's hidden and that's okay, but we've got all the information that we need. I like practical understandings of the things of God. And so I like practical eschatology. When it comes to understanding end times things, I like to be practical with it. Because how smart do you have to be to follow Jesus? You have to get all this stuff straightened out to follow Jesus. No, you don't. Because you don't have to be real bright. You know, it's just a simple fact. Jesus died on the cross for everyone. You can be at the lowest tier of intellectual understanding and you can love Jesus and be saved and not understand any of this. How do we see this in a practical sense? Because I'm not one that understands these things very clearly. I have to study this. I listen to people talk about it and they say a bunch of things and half of it I don't catch and it's kind of complicated things. There are people who have a gift of studying this sort of thing and I've read and watched videos of those people in preparation for doing this series. And I still don't have my finger completely on it. 
you know, but here's something I know for sure. Jesus is coming back and we better prepare ourselves for that. How do we do that? What's the practical way that we do that? Well, here's the, the symbolic way that I like to describe it. And then we'll look at some very practical, simple ways to understand how to handle the future with all these things that have been prophesied about God. I grew up as a wrestler. I enjoyed wrestling. It was a very wonderful sport for me. It's not perfect for everybody, but I loved it. And let me show you the best grip. So this is how you start. Thumbs in, kind of hooks for hands. It's very strong, named after Dan Gable. I believe he introduced this grip, the Gable grip. And I'm going to grab Jesus around the ankles, and I'm going to hold on as hard as I can. And then when the dust settles, I'll be in the right place. That's my plan. And how does that work practically? What, what does that mean? Well, let's go to Luke chapter 12, and this will describe how we can do that, how we can just lock onto Jesus by the ankles and make sure that this works out well for us. There are three verses that say it will be good. We want to pay special attention to those verses because it's not good for everybody, but we want to make sure we fit into the, it will be good for those servants category. So let's take a, a look here. Luke 12, starting in verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. Like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager? I love that. Peter's asking for clarification. Jesus continues with more parables. Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. So being cut to pieces and assigned a place with the unbelievers is bad. We want to avoid that. That's not what we want to have happen. We want good things to happen. So it will be good is in three verses, verses 37, 38, and 43. So let's look at it will be good verses. How do we make sure that all this complicated stuff will go well for us? It will be good for those servants whose masters find them watching when he comes. So it will be good for those who are watching for the arrival of Christ 
who are paying attention and who are looking for God. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. That's an amazing promise. I don't fully understand the whole thing, but it's Jesus promising that when we watch for him, that he will come and then take care of us. We need to be watching. We need to be paying attention. We need to be looking for our Lord's return. It will be good for those who are watching. And, you know, studying the scriptures and trying to figure this stuff out, that's part of watching. That's good. We need to be watching and paying attention. But that's not all there is. The next verse, verse 37, says, It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. Can you be watching and not ready? Now, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes the house isn't as clean as it should be, and somebody's coming over. And so I'm watching out the window to see if they're coming, but I might not be ready yet. I'm hoping they're going to be about 15 minutes late because by then everything will be ready. But if they come 15 minutes early, I'm watching for them, but I'm not prepared yet. I don't have everything taken care of. So you can be watching, but not ready. So how do we get ready for the return of the Lord? How do we make sure we're ready? You know, we might be watching, but how do we know we're ready? It's really not that complicated. In order to get ready for the return of Christ, you got to get your heart right with God. You've got to make your peace with God. You've got to say to the Lord, I want in with you. I want to be part of your plan. And the good news is, is that the price has already been paid, that anything we've done that separates us from God, that makes us unworthy to be part of what God is doing, that's all forgiven by what Christ has done on the cross. And so we can ask for forgiveness, have all of that taken care of, and then we can go with God and we can be ready. Our hearts can be ready before God. But we need to get squared up with God before he comes. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready. And then we jump to verse 43. So watching was the first one. Being ready is the second one. And this one says, it will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Now this, I think, was a reference to the apostles because Peter had asked, hey, is this for everybody or for us? And and Jesus is talking about servants who are to give Other servants, their food at their allotted time, which I think is pretty clearly the teaching and and preaching ministry and that sort of a thing. And so he's saying it will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. But I think we can apply this to any way that we're called to serve and follow God. That it will be good for those who are actively living out their faith when Jesus returns. We're doing something. So it's not just about paying attention and asking for forgiveness and and wanting to walk with God. We actually need to walk with God. We need to be doing so. We need to be living for God. Because when Jesus comes back, if we are serving the Lord the way that he's called us to serve, and for everybody that's different, you know, not everybody is going to be a pastor or a missionary. For the vast majority of people, it means that you keep your job, you keep your house, you have pretty much the same life. You're carrying Jesus with you everywhere that you go. You're carrying the peace of God and the joy of God with you wherever you go. That's usually what this means. And you have 
small ways to serve the Lord, often intangible ways. You see somebody in Walmart and you can just tell they need somebody to talk to. So you go up and talk to them. You know, things like that are how we are doing so, how we are serving the Lord until he comes. So if we do these three things, then I think that's what it means to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. Be watching and paying attention, meaning that, that we're aware that Jesus is coming. We don't know when. You know, I kind of think of it like you're in the doctor's office. You know they're going to call your name. You have no idea when that's going to happen. It could be five minutes, could be an hour and a half. I don't know. But I know they're going to call my name at some point. So you're watching. And then you're ready You've got your heart right with God. You've made your peace with God. And then you're doing. You're serving the Lord the way he's called you to do. You don't have to serve like somebody else does. You just have to serve how God has called you to serve. So that's how we're ready. But I want to read two more verses and bring out uh, some truths from these before we close. The first one we've already read, which is Luke 12, 32. I want to read this one again because... Whenever we deal with topics like this and you're thinking about the return of Christ and all these big scary things, and it's just important to know that God is good. Jesus here says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom, the kingdom of God, everlasting life. This is something that we don't have to talk God into including us on. He wants us in. He loves us. He cares for us. He's pleased to invite us in. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to swim upstream or somehow convince God. He already wants us in. He's pleased to give us the kingdom. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 58. We read 50 through 57, but let's read the next verse. This will be our closing verse. It says this. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. This is how we stay ready. When we have given our lives to Christ, we've asked for forgiveness and and pledged to walk with him. Now we stand firm because we know Jesus is coming. We know that his reward is with him. We know that we can stand firm and see it through to the end. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So be ready and be doing. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because it's not pointless. It's not a waste of time. Serving the Lord bears fruit for God's kingdom, but it also shows us to be prepared for the return of the Lord because if he finds us busy about his business when he comes, then it will be good for us. So we want to be busy serving the Lord. His yoke is easy. His burden is light, but we do need to carry that. Then we can know that we are prepared for the return of the Lord. So we're going to pray and let's make sure that we are in a place where we're watching, we're ready, and we're doing. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are so good. Thank you, Lord, that you are pleased to give us the kingdom, that you are waiting for people to come in and that there is a party in heaven when someone comes to you. Lord, that is so good to know that we don't have to push our way in. We don't have to convince you that we're good enough. You've already done everything necessary for us to be accepted by you. So thank you, Lord, for that. Father, for us, help us to make sure to search our hearts and to look and see 
Are we watching? Are we ready? Are we doing? Lord, each one of us needs to be making sure that we've got these things taken care of. And we might be in different places, uh, learning different things and, and just in a different place with you. For all of us, help us to be ready to keep our hearts right with you. Help us to be doing. Father, show us the thing we're to do. We know that you don't overburden us, but you do have things for us to do. You have character that you want to build in us, and you have things you want us specifically to do uh, for your kingdom, for your glory, for your goodness. And so, Lord, help us to see what those things are so that we can be doing those things and have a, a clear conscience and be eagerly anticipating your return so that you will come as our rescuer, so that you will come and take us to be with you. Lord, help us to be watching, to be ready, and to be doing. And Father, I pray a blessing over each one right now. Lord, I pray your peace would be upon us, that peace that passes all understanding. Lord, I pray you would give us joy that brings strength, knowing that you have a plan for history and you have a plan for us. And Lord, help us to know how much you love us so that we can be filled up with that love and all the darkness can be pushed out and we can be so full of love that we have extra love to share with those in our lives that are difficult to deal with or those who just need some love from you. Lord, bless us in this way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.